Well, we're going to start this morning with a little uh, interaction. It's been a while since we've done a poll, and so I was feeling the itch to do a little hear how you guys are doing. So go ahead and pull out your phones and go to pbc.org slash poll, P-O-L-L. The URL is on the screen. If you're on the patio, we'd love to hear from you live stream as well. And the question for this morning is, what are the roles that you play in life? And we're looking for kind of high level here, not like you know, level four assistant system engineer to the manufacturing line of zone four. Like, more like wife or mother, father, student, whatever it is. But feel free to go as deep as you want. You have three lines you can fill in. Let us know the roles that you play in life. If you're just joining us or coming back or you haven't been paying attention, uh, we are in the book of Ephesians. We're in the middle of this sermon series where we're going through the book of Ephesians, which is typically our practice here at PBC. We've subtitled this series, The Mystery of Christ, because that word mystery appears six times throughout the book, and it seems to refer to the unity that God is working for in a bunch of different areas of life. Today, we're in the second half of a passage generally referred to as a household code, This is actually a common first century literary form that would be used by a multitude of different types of people, not all religious, where they would go through the various roles that people played in that culture and give them instructions. Typically, they would go through the same three areas that we have seen in Ephesians, marriage, family, and professional life. So last week, we saw instructions to wives and husbands, This week, we're looking at instructions to parents and children and to uh, bond servants and their masters, which for us would relate to the professional arena of life. And what we're going to notice in particular as we look at these roles is how the apostle's goal seems to be to figure out how to reorient us from the kinds of things we normally are focused on to be oriented towards Christ. It's what we saw last week where we saw him reorienting wives and husbands from focusing on their spouse to focusing on Christ. We'll see the same in the four roles that we're going to look at this morning. How can we be reoriented toward Christ? Let's look at the roles that all of you play in our world today. So these are the words that you guys came up with. Daughter, employee, husband, father, mother, wife, manager, provider. I love finding some of the smaller ones here. Track coach, auntie, cook, sound guy. Wonder who that could be. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's shifting. Look at this. We got some, oh boy. That was cool, right? We got some chaos going on. Follower, uh, prophet, caretaker, human. There's a unique one. Research scientist, bus driver. I love these. This is cool. Well, thank you. We're going to come back to these in a minute. Um, But these are the roles that we play in our lives. And our question this morning is not just how to apply these words to the four roles that we're going to look at in particular, but how to apply these words to all of those areas of our life. In each 
of the day-to-day things that occupy our time, how do we reorient ourselves toward Christ? It's helpful too to remember why these words were written. If you think back about what life might've been like in the first century, the Roman empire dominated the world. And the Roman empire above all things wanted to keep things calm and orderly. What they hated were people and movements and ideas that threatened to disrupt cultural peace. So then here comes the Christian movement and the followers of Jesus. And they're talking about radical equality. They're talking about forgiveness of sins. They're talking about a community of love and sacrifice. And from a Roman empire perspective, those things seem like they could be threatening to the peace. So as we look at these words that the apostle Paul writes, we can recognize that at least one of his motivations is to help the church establish itself as a kind of community that fits within culture. The instructions he give are not radical instructions. He doesn't say rise up against the Romans. He doesn't say upend cultural norms around marriage. He doesn't say bond servants, free yourselves. You are free in Christ. He gives them instructions on how to operate within the bounds of the culture they live within. But he does so with a complete reorientation, telling them that Christ is there with them. And in fact, Christ changes everything about your day-to-day lives. The effect of that then would be that over time, the culture gets transformed not from above, but from within. Here's my paraphrase of how one commentator points this out. He says, masters would be happy that their bond servants were obeying them without realizing that they had been completely replaced by Christ as the one in charge of their slaves. That's what we're going to see, how Christ infuses these roles and transforms them from within. The passage begins by speaking to fathers and children. And to really get our minds around that, let's think for a minute about what the household would have been like in the first century. This was the basic building block of society, the Roman household. It would consist of a nuclear family, but also extended family, also household servants. This was the center of all of life, family, marriage, and economy. It all happened within the household. And in that place, the father-husband was supreme. He had complete control over what happened. The father would decide when a child was born whether that child would live or die. The father would and did at times, could and did, sell children into slavery if they didn't want to raise them. The father had complete control over hiring and the servant's who worked for him. Children usually started uh, contributing to the economy of the household by around age 10. Sexual exploitation was common within the household. This was really the domain of the husband and father. Now, Jewish households were slightly different. They didn't necessarily operate in exactly the same way, but they were living in the same world and affected by the same expectations. 
With that background then, we can really try to understand how the words that we're going to hear this morning might have been heard in that kind of culture. Here's Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice it doesn't say, for they are right. (laughs) Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what we see here is that the Apostle Paul doesn't give radical instructions to husbands and fathers. These things would have been typical ideas that would have been shared in the first century. The radical part of his command is how he inserts Christ right in the middle of it. He addresses children as free moral agents, giving them a choice as to how to live their lives and tells them to obey their parents as to the Lord. He says to them, your parents are not the ultimate authority in your life. The Lord is. It's Christ who you're learning to submit to. And he addresses fathers and says, your goal in parenting your children is primarily to feed them with a relationship based on Christ. The word there translated bring up is the same word we saw last week that was translated nourish, where the the husband would nourish his wife. Now the fathers nourish their children with the instruction of the Lord. Their primary goal is not to be the authority in their life, but to connect them to their ultimate authority. All of this reorients their life around Christ. So if that's the instructions to the first century, then then what does that mean for us? And to get there, we might think about what our family lives are like. What is the culture of family life like here in the 21st century? So I thought to to get a little insight in that, we'd look at our cultural uh, dictionary, which is, of course, Twitter. So here are some tweets about family life. This first one is from uh, at Mama Jessie C. She says, it's amazing how humans can learn something new every day. For example, every Tuesday, my husband learns our son has soccer practice at six. Here's one from at Mom on the Rocks. Uh, She quotes mother-in-law, you have to teach them really young to pick up after themselves and observes, here's me watching my husband take off his socks and leave them in the middle of the living room. Here's uh, at Exploding Unicorn, James Breakwell. He says, me, good morning, four-year-old. I didn't break anything. Me, searches the house for the thing she broke. (laughs) And this is my favorite. This is uh, at Troy Johnson. He says, went to Legoland. Nice. But they need to have a ride where kids walk across Legos barefoot and the parents just blissfully play on the side, totally unaware. If you're laughing, that's because you've stepped on a Lego and you know the extreme pain that that causes. So I think it's fair to say that our culture is different than the first century, right? So how do we then see Christ inhabiting the day-to-day relationships within 
the families that we live in. And I want to encourage us to think about doing in our culture what the Apostle Paul was trying to do for his culture. Not to try to transform things in massive ways, but to ask the question, how do we insert Christ into the middle of what's already going on and see transformation begin to happen slowly, day by day, interaction by interaction. Find Christ at home. Growing up, I would keep a notebook. I had this notebook that I called my parenting journal and I hid it. It it was under my t-shirts so nobody could find it. Um, And I had a heading that said, things I will never do as a parent. And these were mostly things that, that my parents did that I vowed I would never repeat. One of my great regrets in life is I can't find that notebook, which explains why I'm a terrible father. Um, But I do remember one thing I wrote in that, and that was that we were getting ready to watch family movie night, and I was sitting on the couch, and my my mother came in the room, and she, she said, get off the couch. The couch is mine. This is where you gasp. And she told me to lie on the floor. And I went straight up to my room and I got out my notebook and I wrote, I will never kick my kids off the couch, which I now do pretty much every day. So, but if I had the notebook, maybe I would have remembered not, not to do that. So, you know, our family lives are, are filled with these kinds of interactions between parents and kids and mother-in-laws and father-in-laws and visiting guests and, and exes and, and whatever. And, and, The question is, in the midst of all of those interactions, what does it look like for Christ to be present? How does Christ's work and his life and his call on us as his followers change those things? Not in a dramatic way, but in a way that over time completely transforms our home lives. For children to think about the fact that when they are obeying their parents, It's Christ they're learning to submit to. And I remember being a kid and thinking, everybody's in charge of me. (laughs) My parents, my teachers, my coaches, I have nothing I can do by myself. Everybody tells me what to do. And that's a difficult place to be. But how does it transform the mindset to think, it's really Christ that I'm learning to walk by. And as parents, we have so many needs and goals and things that are on our minds. We want to prepare our children academically. We want to help them get a good job. We want to keep their rooms clean. We want to work with them to get friends. We want to help them have good attitudes. There's so many goals and things that are on our minds. But what if the core of it was simply to feed them with the relationship in Christ? Nourish them day by day with the discipline and instruction of walking with Jesus. And maybe all those other things would come in time. And maybe they're not as much our responsibility as we think. It's those kinds of things that when we are aware of Christ in the day-to-day actions where 
transformation begins and grows. And as our families are transformed, our communities are transformed. And as communities are transformed, the world is transformed and culture at large is transformed by what happens in your living room (laughs) day by day. So the apostle Paul begins at the home, but then he moves on to what we would call the workplace by addressing relationships that are essentially professional in nature. So you find this in verses five through nine. He says this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. First, let's address one of the topics that often comes up in this passage, the elephant in the room of the topic of slavery. The kinds of relationships that the apostle is talking about here, we would characterize as slavery. Bond servants were essentially owned by their masters. And that raises a whole bunch of questions about why here and in other places in the New Testament, slavery isn't directly addressed or criticized or spoken against. Now, there's two things that are helpful in understanding. Firstly, the cultural institution of slavery in the first century is a very different structure than what we would call chattel slavery, which is what was practiced in the United States and other parts of the world during the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, If you want to know more about that, there's a lot of good material there. I've linked to a really good article on Bible.org that you can find in the written version of my sermon. So go there if you really want to find out more about how those institutions are different. The second thing to realize, though, is that even though they are different, even the cultural institution of slavery in the first century is never defended or affirmed or said to be legitimate. Remember, what seems to be the apostle's goal here is not to bring dramatic changes to cultural structures. He's speaking to people about how to function within the culture they live in and to see how Christ transforms it slowly over time, which at least in the case of slavery, we have seen happen much longer time than probably we would have wished. But over time, we have seen that change culture. So we're not going to spend more time on that. We're going to go on to really thinking about how this might apply to us today. First thing I want us to notice is that what the apostle does at the beginning is essentially to level the playing field. You'll notice that he starts by addressing bond servants and he gives them a bunch of instructions, but then he concludes that by saying, hey, this is true whether you're a bond servant or you're free. So immediately the category is expanded. And then when he gets to masters, he says, masters, do the same thing, lumping them back into the same category. And so really the instructions that he gives are for everyone. And even in that strategy, 
we can see what he's trying to do. Because Roman culture was extremely stratified. There were levels upon levels of social class. And so the apostle here is giving instructions that are essentially the same to everyone. And notice that those instructions have mostly to do with the relationships that people are experiencing within what we would call the workplace, which was essentially the household. Bosses and masters, masters and slaves, freemen and bond servants. And if you think about your own either workplace or volunteer place or home or retirement, wherever you spend a lot of your time, the, the kinds of things that are hard about those places are often the relationships. You might come home from work and complain about your boss or the people that work for you or the people you work with or your customers or your clients. Or it's the people that make often the way we spend our time difficult. And so the apostle focuses on those kinds of relationships and he gives a list of commands. So here's some of them. He talks about treating people with fear and trembling. He references eye service and the idea of being a people pleaser. He references a sincere heart and encourages service with a goodwill. Let's think about these phrases. That first one's a little confusing. Are we really supposed to tremble before people at the workplace? Uh, but this phrase is a New Testament idiom. You'll find it throughout the New Testament. And it's, it's a phrase that, that the words itself don't exactly mean what it means. It's like, um, you know, don't beat a dead horse. And if you just see that for the first time, you think, who would beat a dead horse? Why do we say that? But it means don't keep carrying on about something that's not fruitful. So treating somebody with fear and trembling is simply meaning respect people. Treat them with some level of respect and uh, kind of generosity. Um, eye service and people pleasing. This has to do with the people we would call brown nosers or, um, you know, there are some other words I probably shouldn't say from the pulpit. Um, but the kinds of people that, that, that seem to be doing, working really hard when the boss is around, but then when the boss is gone, they're sitting around lazy. So don't be like that. Uh, I, this phrase sincere heart is interesting because at the heart of the word sincere is the idea of being simple. And it's kind of treating people with a simple manner. It's not like I've got one agenda with you and another agenda with this other person. And I'm trying to negotiate this thing over here. And I'm trying to figure this out. I'm just, I'm just simple relating to everybody around me. And the service with the goodwill, it's that attitude, enthusiasm, engagement, be involved in what you're doing. So all of these words are things that, that we would say are important in our workplace today. You might even find them in a company onboarding manual or some type of leadership training program where you would say, this is how employees ought to behave. This is what we want to characterize the workplace. But if you've ever had a job, you know that just saying we want these things to be true isn't enough. And so the real power in the instructions that the apostle gives has to do with how he takes all of those things and infuses Christ into them. So he says things like, as you would Christ. He's replacing the boss relationship with an orientation to Christ. He talks to them as bondservants of Christ. He's changing their identity of themselves as bondservants, not of their master, but of Christ. The will of God is what they're submitting to, not the will of some man or woman who has their own ideas. As to the Lord, 
He's, he's referencing even their paycheck saying, you're working not for the money that you're being paid, but for what God will give you, what you will receive from the Lord. And then he flattens the system and says, all of you have the same master anyway. This is how the apostle tries to reorient our minds to put Christ at the center. The goal is here, how do we find Christ at work? Find Christ at work. Sometimes that means finding Christ in the actual work we do. I was involved in a Christian fellowship when I was in college and had a great experience. But one of the dynamics that I sometimes felt was that the the Christian leaders would sometimes make us students feel like our classes were just distractions. And what we really should be doing is leading small groups and talking to people about Jesus and doing all this stuff with the Christian organization. Um, And I I think, I I hope this doesn't happen, but sometimes that happens in churches as well, where, where you might feel like the attitude is, you know, your jobs are just distractions. The, the real work happens here on the campus of PBC. But, but in college, what, what I did was I came to a PBC men's retreat as a college student, and, and it blew my mind. It wasn't anything dramatic, but I remember, I don't remember who it was or what he was saying, what he was talking about, but, but here's a man who was addressing a room full of people who mostly spent most of their time working. And I remember thinking, he seems to think that's Okay. He's not criticizing them for spending most of their time at their jobs. And I thought maybe there's something more going on about how Christ works through our work. If that idea interests you, we are actually having a men's retreat. And like I almost said, I'm sure the men's retreat will be great too. So I can give you some more information about it. Uh, We're going to have a great men's retreat. We're actually looking at the theme of vocation. And we're thinking about that broadly, whether you're a student or an employee or stay-at-home dad or retired or a volunteer. How does God shape the time we spend doing whatever it is that we're doing with that time? And so um, I'll be giving some of the talks. Mayo Adigan, one of our young adults, is giving some of the talks. And Steve Zeisler is going to be speaking as well. So it should be a great time. Really hope you men out there can join us for that. Registration reopens today. So get your spot early. We're also incidentally going to be thinking about some other ways to think about how God changes our attitude at work uh, over the next several months at PBC at large. So you can look forward to some of those opportunities too. So finding Christ at work sometimes means seeing him in our work, but it can also mean seeing him change our relationships. And the phrase that really stood out to me when I read this passage was that phrase at the end, there is no partiality with God. And what I realized is that every one of our workplaces or volunteer places or homes or every part of culture we live in has partiality. Everything has a structure. There are people at the bottom, people in the middle, and people at the top. And a lot of industries have even a very sharp distinction so that in healthcare, there are doctors and nurses. In education, there are administrators and there are teachers. In government, there are elected officials and there are appointed officials. In the food industry, there are the people that work in the front of the house, serving the food, and people that work in the back of the house, preparing the food. We live and work among all of these dynamics where there are differences of status and respect and dignity. 
before becoming a pastor, I worked in a software and I was a product manager, which meant that I was helping to design the product that we were building. Um, and on our team, we had what's called a QA team, which is a quality assurance team. Those of you in software know what I'm talking about. But it was a team whose basic job is to tell the people that write the software what they did wrong. So you can imagine they were really popular, right? And there was always this little bit of tension, sometimes a lot of tension between the engineers and the QA team. And on our particular development team, our QA manager was a, a bit of a salty personality, a little bit difficult to get along with sometimes. And so there was a lot of tension that was at work there. And I remember after one meeting, my, our career manager came out to me and he just said, thank you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I said, what are, you, what are you thanking me for? And he said, you're the only person in meetings that ever asks for my opinion. And it wasn't as if I was going out of my way to ask for his opinion or trying to level the playing field or even thinking about how Christ influences my workplace. I just wanted to know what he thought. But most people didn't have that perspective. So think about some of the dynamics in your life, in your workplace, in your industry, in your however you spend your time. What does it look like to wipe out partiality, to forget about those distinctions, whatever they might be, to recognize that their master and yours is the same? That's the kind of transformation that happens when Christ comes into our lives in the minute-by-minute, day-to-day experience. I want to take a step back now and think a little bit more about how this plays out in culture at large. See, what we've been seeing over and over again is how the Apostle Paul addresses these cultural structures, marriage, family, workplace. And again, we see him doing two things. We see him helping people figure out how to function well within the culture that they find themselves and how to be productive and decent and worthwhile and a a contributing member of that culture, but also how to bring Christ in there and transform the nature of that cultural structure from within. Not by rising up or, or criticizing or imposing new rules, but by the daily interactions that bubble up to the surface. And so as we think about these roles that we play in our lives, this should be our goal to reflect on how Christ changes those little things in our lives and moments, and then to watch the transformation happen. Our goal is to find Christ everywhere. You know that we've been studying the book of Ephesians with several other pastors from Palo Alto. Uh, You've seen some of them on the videos that we've been showing, and that's been really fruitful as a way of hearing how these words apply in different settings. So one of the conversations we had, I thought I'd share it with you, was from the pastors at Lord's Grace Christian Church, which is over in Mountain View. It's a Chinese church with uh, different congregations within their church. Um, And those pastors were talking about one of the common struggles they face, which is they have a lot of recent Chinese immigrants who who will come to the United States um, from what they perceive as an Eastern culture. And then they have children here and raise those children in what they perceive as a Western culture. And then there's this conflict between cultures. Well, I know we have a lot of the same dynamics with with some of our families as well. And they talked about how for a lot of the, the older people coming from an Eastern cultural perspective, they equate the Western culture with Christianity. 
And so there's this other dynamic of figuring out how Christ plays into that. And there's can end up being a lot of tension, kind of a culture clash. And how some of the instruction is sometimes what people think is that we need to figure out what is the Christian culture that replaces both cultures. But the more we talked about it as a team of pastors and looked at the text, we realized that's not Paul's goal in Ephesians. He's not trying to create a third culture. He's not trying to homogenize Christian experience so that we all parent the same way, work the same way. All of our marriages look the same. All of our enjoyment is the same. He's not trying to meld everything into one. He's saying, invite Christ into your culture. And so that at the end, there is an Eastern cultural mindset with Christ at the center. There is a Western cultural mindset with Christ at the center. There is whatever mixture you come from, there's all these variations. And the result is this beautiful tapestry of life lived a hundred ways, but all of them infused and informed by the person of Jesus Christ. And so for us then living in our culture, the goal is not to get in these culture wars, to to impose a Christian perspective or to, or to fight people that think differently, but to ask in our places where we find ourselves how we can live out Christ and let the transformation happen naturally. So let's go back and look at those roles one last time. Let's look at the roles that we play within our culture. What does it look like then to see Christ infused into the role of teacher? Christ infused into the role of artist or healer or uncle or son or friend or child of God or educator or daughter or provider or any of those. This is our goal. This is the journey we're on as a community to find Christ transforming each of those places in our lives day by day. When we do this, It doesn't happen easily. That's where we're going next week. When we start to live this way, we will become aware that there are forces that want to prevent that from happening. And so next week, we'll start talking about the warfare that results when the kingdom of God advances in our lives because kingdoms never give up power easily and the kingdom of the earth will not lie down. So when we invite Christ in, there are forces that want to resist him. That's where we'll go next week. For this week, we're trying to think about from our perspective how to invite Christ's presence daily. So it makes sense then that what we're going to do now is transition into a time of communion. I want to invite the band back up and I want to invite you to think of this time as a physical moment where you are inviting Christ literally into your body. And this is a representation. This is a reminder. It's a symbol of what we are to do day by day, inviting Christ into every aspect of our lives. As we, as we taste the, the bread and drink from the cup, we sense the presence of Christ with us. And we know that that's the nourishment we need for continuing on in faith as we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Uh, We're so grateful for these words. We're so grateful that you give us instruction and guidance for how to live out these details of life, 
how the big ideas of your sovereignty and Christ's love for us and the unity of the cosmos, how those things get played out as we sit at our desks or as we interact with customers, as we write code or treat patients or defend clients or clean stalls or fix cars or whatever it is that you've called us to do. Father, help us to find Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, and everywhere. We pray for our culture that that you would transform it through our, our lives and that you would give us the strength to be faithful to you. In the name of Jesus, we lift up these things. Amen. Go ahead and take communion while the band plays softly and then we'll continue in worship.